1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Penny von Eschen to tell us all about her book, published by Duke University Press, titled Paradoxes of Nostalgia Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorder Since 1989. This, I found to be honestly quite a fascinating book, um, going on all sorts of different places involved in the Cold War, thinking about the shadow that's cast over multiple areas, geopolitics, but also journalism, also pop culture, like films and video games, helping us understand what is Cold War nostalgia, what does it look like in the different places why does it look this way? And how does that help us understand some of today's politics? So Penny, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: I'm so glad. Before we dive into all of the very cool things about your book, though, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you wrote this book?
1: Uh, Not at all. Thank you. So um, first of all, I'm, I'm a professor of history and American studies at the University of Virginia and where I've been for about five years. And this book came out of a very longstanding interest in intersections of Cold War politics and colonialism and anti-colonialism. For example, the, my what was my dissertation and my first book is called Race Against Empire, African-Americans and Anti-Colonialism. And it looked at the way African Americans were involved in global projects. And as I'm looking at that, I realized how deeply um, these projects were surveilled, repressed by U.S. Cold War security state, how they went after individuals and the broadest projects as a whole. So it ends up tracing the unraveling of that. And in the process, I discovered Reading African American and global Black papers that jazz musicians had toured for the State Department. And I thought that was such an interesting contradiction. And as I explored their projects, and the musicians were deeply interested in civil rights and making global connections. But as I explored their projects and the way they were situated and sort of nested in a US government that wanted to prove to decolonizing countries that the US was on their side and wasn't like those horrible British and French colonialists, I realized that these tours were directly tracking American imperial interventions in Iran, in the Congo, and always tied up with these very, very mucky and complex and um, violent Cold War interventions. So in some sense, this book continues both of those interests as I look at, in one sense, the afterlives of the intersections of colonial and Cold War violence. And then what happens after an indeed really big shift between in the 80s and especially, you know, 89 and its aftermath. And how do those, how do those histories play out? How do those afterlives play out?
0: Very interesting. I'm very glad you came to this through that progression. Um, And it's a very interesting set of questions that you're asking in this book. Um, To start off with, would you mind telling us a bit about the three processes that your book traces in order to investigate this and via which case studies?
1: sure absolutely and and let i'll start with just a tiny bit more about where this book came from in that in that longer broader trajectory so i started thinking about this book in the early 2000s as the us went to war in afghanistan and then invaded iraq for the second time and at that moment i was i was really struck by two things one I was astounded by the claims of what I heard as Cold War triumphalism, this idea that we won the Cold War and how much that was used to justify these interventions. And so, in part of the logic was, and what you were hearing from both politicians, but also pundits was we won the Cold War because of military might. And then bizarrely, because there's all sorts of contradictions in nostalgia, kept hearing these claims that after 9-11 and people are horrified, of course, by this horrible act of terror, but this constant claim that I miss the Cold War, it was better than it was safer, it was stable, we knew who our enemies were. Now they're out there and we don't know who they are. So this, this idea that the Cold War is safer is frankly, it's obscene. It's a horrible erasure of the millions of deaths, especially in Asia, Latin America, Africa. So I, I was just, this has become a conundrum that I really wanted to investigate. The other thing that was going on in this moment that led to um, this book, and then I'm going to come back to, you know, directly going into the three processes, is that the U.S. Um, this is a moment when there were many articulations of nostalgia in the Eastern Bloc, and there were films. Uh, Goodbye, Lenin! comes out. There was there was a flurry of museums being opened or flourishing that examined Eastern Bloc past, selling um, <sighs> selling objects from the. From the sort of Soviet and socialist periods, and what fascinated me is that there was a whole discourse in the U.S. That's, that pur- purported to be baffled by this. Oh my goodness, how can those weird people ever miss something as horrible as a socialist past? Yet there was a there was no parallel recognition of the pronounced Cold War nostalgia being articulated. In in multiple registers registers in the United States, from politics to popular culture. So all of this led me to set um so to set out on an investigation of this. So three of the different things that are traced are how do how how are people employing claims about the Cold War and the Cold War past in for contemporary political purposes, um, for purposes of foreign policy, for purposes of intervention. And what are the the different memories that are constructed by politicians, by pundits, and in popular culture? So why are they they being constructed in particular moments? Um, And here, one of the things I trace is that in, to, to somewhat simplify things, I think it's, but I think it's very important to make a distinction between mythical and critical nostalgias. So much of the nostalgia we see in the United States and and also many times in, in the Eastern Bloc, but I don't want, you know, are something we could call mythic nostalgias. Um, they take the present and they construct a very invented, simplified past to serve contemporary purposes, but at the same time, I think there are modes of critical nostalgia where people both at times in the United States and you see this in many places um, in at in the former Eastern Bloc, where people are not necessarily constituting a, a mythical past but saying, "Well, wait a minute, you know the that world ended so quickly and I'm unsettled. And what do I miss about it? And I miss, you know, I miss a time when everything was not about money. I miss having health care. I miss having a stable job. All of these things have been completely thrown up in the air after the Cold War, through programs of shock therapy, through programs of structural adjustment, through a massive disinvestment in social service programs and an administrative state in the United States. So this creates, I think, a sort of a helpful, critical nostalgia where we can say, well, what happened in the past and what's that about? And a third thing that I was tracing then uh, was our third area of inquiry is how how these different kind of claims work together in many different registers. So, looking at claims of presidents, leaders, politicians, claims of pundits, and but also the way these kinds of nostalgias and claims about the past get articulated in Hollywood movies, um, eventually in video games, as the Activision Call of Duty and, whole, and that mode of popular culture becomes. A major, major site of making claims about the Cold War, um, the way the U.S. military is interacting with big video game corporations and even becomes a site of international diplomatic contestation. So those are three of the kinds of kind of non-parallel inquiries that I try to carry through the book
0: very fascinating ones. I mean, just from that list, I would have an endless number of things I want to ask you about. Um, But I've tried to organize all of my thoughts into some sort of coherent method to hopefully take our listeners through those themes and processes that you trace. Um, And I've gone for, I guess, the historian's easiest way of organizing, which is vaguely chronological. Um, So to start off with, I think one of the things that was the most interesting, this idea of, oh, I wish, I remember it was great when we had healthcare. It was great when everything wasn't about money. Um, because today that seems so sort of inevitable. Well, was there really a time like that or could there be again? There's no way. But you show in the book that there were alternatives, there were other visions for what the end of the Cold War could mean to different politics, different political systems. And so I'm wondering if you can take us back there and help us understand why and how some of these alternative post-Cold War visions, people like Gorbachev, Havel, Mandela, why didn't those end up coming true?
1: Uh, Thank you so much. So I'm going to very quickly get you a question, but I first want to outline just in a nutshell what those alternative visions were on the table and how highly visible they were. And three of the figures that I use in the book to illustrate that are Nelson Mandela, as he's released from prison in 1990, Vaclav Havel, and um, who is very is released from prison and quickly becomes president of then Czechoslovakia, and Gorbachev, who's been a leading voice in reform and what was really on the table was all of these leaders had a sense of a deep critique of Cold War authoritarianism and what had gone wrong, but they all wanted socialism with a human face and a vision of coming out of the Cold War that was addressed issues of economic injustice, addressed very importantly, the devastating environmental consequences of Cold War militarism and this idea that a good life had to be raised based on a race for more and more consumption everywhere in the world. And at the very heart of this was a notion of demilitarization, that militarization had been incredibly damaging, and we need to move beyond that by strengthening um, the United States, multinational cooperation, moving toward a world of justice, environmental redress, and above all, nuclear, weapon-free, demilitarized world. And... Just a couple of examples of how much that was on the table. Um, I go back to a a 1986 declaration that Gorbachev did with Rajiv Gandhi called the Delhi Declaration that really outlined all of these things, putting environmental redress and demilitarization at the heart of the where the world should go. And these discussions were at the heart, um, you know, really, really at the heart of public attention in the 90s as. Mandela and, you know, first Vaclav Havel and Mandela came to the United States and aired their vision of the where the world should go, um, that Cold War militarism should be irrelevant, that the Warsaw Pact and indeed NATO had no purpose anymore. How do we work together um, to move ahead to this de- demilitarized world? Now, in, in a nutshell these visions got displaced. And I think we can look at these broader processes and how it happened. And I'm grateful to you for the questions about chronology, because I'm an historian. I don't, I I don't just love chronology. I think it's absolutely critical for us to understand contingencies of the moment, what was possible and how, Yes. yes. And what, what, and then how those things got derailed. So in the broader sense, there was a sort of, a, we could call it a Reagan-Thatcher project. It didn't it just start in the 80s, but of a radical privatization of the world. And one of the things, as you look at the Reagan administration, they very consciously, through some of the national security directives, very intentionally tried to weaponize, or tried, they did weaponize, Western financial instruments, IMF, World Bank, to try to weaken the Soviet bloc, and very importantly, Yugoslavia. And um, sort of brilliant historians of Yugoslavia have sort of really detailed how that led to a breakup of Yugoslavia. Um, So there is a project, um, structural adjustment, um, shock therapy, that is aimed at undoing those economies and then any last vestiges of, of an administrative or sort of social service state. So that is weakening these projects throughout. And there's a sense, it's very poignant in the case of South Africa, because they have such a strong agenda for economic redistribution in a country that's been run by a handful of, oligarchical companies, and people are incredibly impoverished. But they were really put with a tough decision that if you don't play on our field, if you don't accept the sort of IMF, World Bank terms of investment and banking, we are you will have no investment. We will bring you to your knees, like Cuba, like you know, like other socialist countries who have not, you know, played this game. So that's going on. And then in a very specific sense, I think the moment of that, the moment when Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and then the u s eventually pulls a, co- a coalition around to invade Iraq rather than choosing a negotiated settlement i think is is really critical in the immediate contingent sense because if you go back, what was on the table then is that the vast majority of countries at the in the, uh, at, in the United Nations and the u n vote and this would include gorbachev Mandela. Very much wanted a negotiated settlement, and we should also remember that Saddam Hussein was willing to talk about a timeline for withdrawal and a negotiated settlement. But George H. W. Bush and people in you know people in the U.S. administration really did not want that, and um, and I think it, it's kind of a momentous moment because. They basically, Bush even said at one point, you know, we we're not, there's only one power in the world right now. It, it, we're the only superpower, we're the unipolar power, and people have to kind of go along. People have to go along with us. And and so Bush both had um, a real falling out. There's really interesting conversations with Mandela. You can see how this works out, but Bush is also a really skilled politician. So through a combination of threats, you know, he's really good at the carrot and the stick. So with Havel, he convinces him, you know, there, look at these horrible human rights record, look with, you know, what, look at what his is doing. Now he's not wrong to say that, but by elevating only that aspect and ignoring the possibility of a peaceful negotiated settlement, he gets Havel to succumb. He doesn't, he basically forces Gorbachev and Mandela, they basically had no choice. He never really talked them into it. But I think something, what happened then is, I think it's just momentous because it's a moment when, um, when they both double down on re, um, a remilitarization and they double down on a fossil fuel economy, both of which had been um, re, it really... Deeply on the table to rethink those. So, and and I think one can demonstrate that basically um, that Bush and Bush and the immediate advisors and the people in power at that moment, they did not want to give up a military or fossil fuel economy. They benefited from these things enormously. So by so in in that particular moment in going into war, um, it it really does help to shut down these um, this earlier discussion. And one of the things that was very much um, on the table there was a great deal of talk in the United States as well of Europe as of, of, of a peace dividend. Now that we don't need to waste all this money on Cold War weapons on nuclear weapons. We can take that money and we can use it to, um, for the social good. We can fix crumbling infrastructures. Money can go into public education. And we can, we can deal with the environment. And as one, I think, you know, very astute commentator at the moment said, as the U.S. went into Iraq, not only is there no, do we have no peace dividend, we have no peace. And then what Followed from this, and this is not the first intervention, the US had gone into Panama, there's other things going on. But what followed from this is a whole series of wars and lower level interventions prior to um, the major interventions of the US in Afghanistan and Iraq, which again, like completely derailed that environmentalist and demilitarized agenda.
0: Mm. and that's what we have now in lots of ways that we don't realize kind of what the contingency was right what the other alternatives could have been so excavating that i think is really helpful in explaining kind of where does this nostalgia come from and what, what what are people maybe without being able to articulate it always um sort of wishing for um and, and I think that that applies on a mass geopolitical level in terms of kind of the world order, but also very much on a more kind of everyday personal level. We've briefly mentioned the idea of sort of public health care. But one thing you also talk about in the book is the nuclear family, um, kind of another thing that we maybe sort of take for granted today, even though there's also all sorts of discussion about how that doesn't really fit and how that can be um, quite challenging for a lot of people and communities. So I guess in a similar vein to my previous question, can you help us understand why and with what consequences did the nuclear family become so much more important um, in this sort of similar time period? Interestingly, as you show in the book, both on both sides of the former Iron Curtain?
1: Yes, thank you for that question. So we should preface this by saying that the idea of the family and the nuclear family as tied to patriotism and a nation state were very important in both the U.S. and the Soviet bloc as, um, during the Cold War era. So what's interesting is what really changes here. So I think what changes, and you can see um, As a parallel to shock therapy or structural adjustment and a great privatization and weakening the state in the rest of the world, um, there's also a project of greatly weakening social service programs in the state within the United States. And this is deeply ideological. Irving Kristol, the neoconservative intellectual, if we can call him that, said, In 19, you know, in 1993, he said, "Well, the Cold War, you know, the fight against international communism may be over, but my Cold War is just beginning. We are going to go after every vestige of bureaucracy and and administrative states within the U.S." And he was, you know, looking at different registers. It was. Newt Gingrich and what they call the Contract for America that laid this out in great depth. And this whole idea that we're, that we, and they literally use the language like in the 1992 Republican platform and that goes through to 94 when Gingrich and these conservative Republicans took over the House. They use the language that we have vestiges of the Kremlin in the United States government. Bill Clinton's health care plan is socialist. And we're, we've got to go after all of this. So they pass some pretty radical legislation. And I will say Clinton first vetoed this, and then he eventually succumbed and they dismantled Aid to families with dependent children, and put in which had been meant to support single mothers, people who who needed money to support their children and their families, and they replaced these programs with. Um, and and um, Melinda Cooper is a sociologist who's written about this in really important detail and important ways. They they replaced these programs with what was um, colloquially known as a deadbeat dad program. It said, we're not going to give money to a single mother who, um, who is, you know, poor or struggling or unemployed or does not have a job that, that brings her above the poverty line. We're going to find the father and we're going to go after him. So it immediately says the, the woman cannot have money except through this absent man. And and the absent man is often if is often very unemployed, poor himself, perhaps incarcerated, but they're going to go after this person. Money can only come through him. The woman's getting no money. Now, the upshot of this is women become far more dependent on um, they can't get resources from the state or they're getting these. Um, ridiculous conditions that you can only get resources if if you prove you're looking for a job 12 hours a day. Um, And you can't get resources from the state. So they become dependent on um, either their own families who are often very poor and can't help them, but it gets them more wrapped into family dynamics. But it also, they need to turn to institutions that are far more cultural conservative uh, uh, more conservative and are almost always located in churches and this actually gets written into US law before George W. Bush beca- but he really expands it so they allow um, conservative churches to administer these programs and while they can't technically require, A recipient of aid to accept everything. They also will not require the churches to, um, in any way, uh, soften or hold back their beliefs. So, aid becomes you. The vast majority of aid becomes funneled through programs that require a conservative adherence to. religion and other conservative cultural values and people must either profess this or tolerate the profession you know the profession of this in order to get any kind of aid whatsoever Now in this on the Soviet side um, some anthropologists have written about this in you know in really really insightful ways and and again it's um, for a generation of women who, had some semblance of support from the state. They had employment, they had healthcare. Of course, we know these societies are struggling economically. It was far from perfect, but this was a fundamental safety net that they could rely on. And with the collapse of that and with the imposition of modes of shock therapy that completely kind of forbade those systems of assistance, People could only turn back on, again, a nuclear family, whether or not it was dependable, whether or not it was supportive, whether or not it was abusive. And again, these conservative cultural institutions, which had been not there or under the radar in Soviet times, but then you'll get a development of conservative churches or conservative institutions that people, again, are forced to turn to.
0: Thank you for explaining that. I I thought it was so interesting how just this one question of like, wait a second, how does the status of the nuclear family change opens up all these other things, right? helps us understand the increasing prominence of the church as institutions, um, among many other aspects of that answer. Um, So just in those two questions, you've helped us understand loads of things about how we've ended up where we are now. Um, But of course, the fact that you've kind of, you've had to explain this to us, right? You've had to go into the literature, go back into this and excavate all these historical understandings. Um, also tells us something interesting about how we are remembering them or not remembering them or misremembering them or something's happening there about sort of what is coming through, especially in the popular imagination about um, the Cold War uh, during this time period. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about, especially films, novels, while all this is happening in the 1990s how is that playing into this whole process of sort of reconfiguring what the cold war was and what we're going to be nostalgic about it and how that's going to factor into the post cold war time
1: sure thank you um i think the um you know the in the 90s there um there was mirrored in popular culture but in hollywood and in u.s film there was a kind of a panic that was that you heard in other places I'm like oh no now that the cold war's over we don't know who our enemy was like what you know we've got you know we knew it was the soviets now who are you know who are the enemies so i think you you see in you see in blockbuster hollywood films and um so from from air force 1 to it's interesting to trace the evolution of the whole bond franchise you see this movement from the cold war enemy to a mapping of a new geopolitical world where where there were sort of shadowy shadowy figures who were either terrorists or gunrunners but in looking at the patterns um, one of the things that I trace in the book, and this this is just one pattern, but I think it's, it's very, very powerful. And I think it's very important that it happens well before 9-11. You see a pattern where the new enemy starts to be named as um, Muslims, Islam. And one of the things, um, so... So what I think you see in every register, and I, I didn't talk about this with the war in Iraq, but I think it you you see it in a very clear way in 1990, 91, where one of the new justifications the Bush administration is turning to is a notion of a clash of civilizations and the notion that there's irrational Muslim people that we don't understand, but they po- they pose a real threat to us. And this is the kind of thing you start to see in Hollywood. One example I talk about is this shift to the the new Hollywood, the new popular culture enemy is a figure of Tom Clancy, who had written a whole series of Cold War novels um, about the danger of Russia and and the Soviets and how they can't be trusted and how these are our big enemy. And very tellingly, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Clancy's very first novel imagines um, this bizarre, what he calls an Islamic republic, consisting of, this makes no sense, of course, of India, China, and the Middle East kind of rising up and coming together. And in his novel, Assassinating the US president, causing all sorts of problems, then eventually leading to attack on the United States, um, using Ebola as a weapon against the United States, kidnapping the president's daughter. I mean, just absolutely crazy stuff. But it is, um, but it's a way in which you can see these anxieties about. Um, We don't understand this world anymore. And I think of this also as, you know, there, there are real threats. I think about it as busted containers. You know, the Soviet Union's no longer there. So the way we understood struggles over both where are nuclear weapons? Where is the oil contained? All of that stuff is shifting, and so these dramas kind of go to that, and they look at there's all these movies that imagine the theft of a nuclear weapon or the theft of a nuclear device, and again, it's not that that wasn't a real threat, but it's the way they stage this as um, as you know where the threat is located, and um, and of course you know who who the saviors are that that again, I think helps construct an imagination that both, it, it's both a Cold War nostalgia. And you get in um, a 1997 film, The Peacemakers, and then later in the in a James Bond film in the 2000s, real sharp articulations, like somebody says, you know, Russia is an effing mess, God, I miss the Cold War. And, you know, Judy Dench in a, later Bond film, is like Christ in Cold War. So this whole notion that there is, you know, that again, obscenely ignoring all the deaths in the Cold War, the Cold War was safer, all of this stuff is so dangerous, linking it in the vaguest sense of sort of, you know, blaming, you know, Islam in general, or Muslim peoples, and then Helping to justify, so what do we need? We need more security. We need special agents. We need James Bond or James Bourne to save us, and we need more US militarism. We need those interventions in Iraq, totally based on false claims of weapons of mass destruction. We need not a pointed way of of addressing are looking for bin Laden and the perpetrators in 9-11, but we need to invade and destabilize an entire country. So this just sense of threat and this world out of control helps to justify um, this enormously expanded military operations and the enormously expanded um, national security state that went with it in, you know, after 9-11, with the Patriot Act, with Homeland Security. Um, and so, and I think in the broader sense of meaning making, like what gets a skeptical public who wanted a peace dividend or who now is wary of another war and that spending, what gets people kind of on board to accept this logic? And I think in that sense, it's really critical to look at multiple layers of meaning making. And it's not that they're always working directly together. There are contradictions, but it's remarkable to see these patterns across the politicians, the pundits and, and popular culture. Um, Yeah. So I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that for
0: now. Yeah, I think I think it is really quite remarkable um, and raises all sorts of fascinating, you know, just even hearing that, like, oh, I missed the Cold War. It's like, whoa, OK, there's a lot being packed into that sentence um, and a lot of really interesting ways that that's portrayed. And I'd love to sort of continue that because, of course, you know, James Bond is Pretty heavily, I think you could say, Western tradition. Western, um, yeah. You know, Anglo-American, pretty obviously. Um, but you also talk about in the book, a lot of these things are crossing over in a way into Eastern Europe, formerly, you know, that side of the Cold War. Um, and there's a lot of aspects to it, but I was particularly interested in this idea of Western triumphalism, right? Because I think one of the things behind this, oh, I I miss the Cold War is the fear is the we used to know who the enemies were but it was also to some extent the kind of and we beat them wouldn't it be nice to go back to a time when like the west won um and that's obviously a strange thing then for eastern europe to encounter and think about and deal with so i'm wondering if you can tell us about that how did western triumphalism sort of enter into formerly eastern spaces and what happened
1: Thank you for that question. Um, there's there's so many different examples. So I will, with no detail, I'll start with some very obvious um, programs. So, and I I talk about this in much more detail in the book. But the shock therapy programs that um, the kind of economic programs that were imposed on the Eastern Bloc um, led to. Both some immediate resentment and I would say a lot of much longer term suffering because they did not benefit the majority of the people. A lot of people were completely left out of the new economy, and that becomes one factor enabling the later rise of authoritarianism in in countries such as, as, as Russia with Putin, such as, you know, Poland, Hungary, it's not the only factor, but it's, it's one, I think, very important factor. So that's on a kind of a macro level. And then it's just, it's interesting to see um, um, just some much more, um, some examples, the way um, in, in Krakow, Um, the the neighborhood called Huta, which was a kind of a Stalin built town with uh, a steel factory. And it was supposed to be a worker's paradise. And in fact, there was food, there was housing. And um, scholars of Poland had talked in really interesting ways about the, you know, the ethos of that pride in labor. Was part of what led into the solidarity movement, and so this is a very interesting case where it's a workers' union movement that challenges the communist regime, and so I visited that and that area, and it's just incredibly interesting because one of the squares I think you know absolutely not in the spirit of Solidarnosc and the way this. This, these worker movements had claimed small d democracy and overthrown authoritarianism there's a ronald reagan square and ronald reagan is a profound union buster and so this is one area that you could see i think you know a somewhat obnoxious form that does not honor the complexity of the history here of what actually happened and Um, And I can't say that I would know what a lot of people there think about it. I mean, I certainly ask people and people, there's a lot of criticism. People make fun of it. Uh, There's both eye rolls and much more bitter criticism. And, you know, I was there in this moment when this, the steel factory, of course, had been completely um, taken over by multinational corporations who had radically cut the pay and benefits of the Polish workers and they had no security like they had had in, in the earlier times. And then eventually it shut down in, 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 in a, in a global steel crisis. So it's this kind of really kind of sad vacuum. And it was also this moment where um, as, you know, as Poland was starting to move to the right and a more authoritarian government which was really afraid of this history and so really controlling the museums and there were all sorts of tax on the Solidarity Museum and the Dance because it was seen as European and cosmopolitan and this is not Polish history and laws against anyone in Poland saying that Polish, some Polish people or many had been complicit in the Holocaust so there's all s- sorts of stuff going on but this also meshed with um, again, an anti-communism where it's the reason nobody could talk about that is that Pol- the Polish people had simply been victims of the Holocaust and victims of communism. So no space to talk about how a workers' movement had overthrown authoritarianism. And the victims of communism, um, so it all of this stuff, It's it's fundamentally a story of victimization. And I think I see a pattern where... That that claim to victimization, I think, is fundamental to the rise of authoritarian um, governments in you know in in Europe and the former Eastern Bloc. And one kind of very funny, I mean, it, it's pathetic and funny. There there was a, a socialist themed restaurant in Novohuta, and it had this very large. Um, Really, just poster advertisement that had Lenin, and it was shut down supposedly and maybe for health violations, maybe that was true, but they were only allowed to re-enter by um taking off the body of Lenin and they were allowed to have the head at the top and I just saw this as such a um, pathetically hilarious but poignant and telling um sort of just decapit- <laughs> sort of decapitization of lenin and I and when I look at Western triumphalism, there was um, all these crazy violent examples in the United States where um, where pe- people were really obsessed with fallen statues of Lenin and displaying them in the United States in museums and outside museums with the head taken off. There was a restaurant in Las Vegas that had a statue of Lenin outside without a head and one could go in and ordered um, vodka shots off Ahead of Lenin, so there's just so I think on the Western side there's a there there there's a real like enactment of like this again violent and it's a it's it's totally absurd but it's these like yeah violent enactments of triumphalism and it's just very you know it's just very poignant to see that kind of triumphalism moving into um you know moving into a formerly Eastern bloc. And one more really interesting example, and it's, um, I had a chance to spend a little time in Kyrgyzstan. And so this is a former Soviet Central Asian Republic that, um, really had very, very interesting, um, it was one of the, I think, the more interesting and successful ethno-national building projects of the early Leninist period, where money poured in and built like they built Kyrgyz Theater, created written languages. And it was a country that suffered terribly when the Soviet Union collapsed. And there is a great deal, there was, you know, a great deal of Soviet nostalgia. It's also a place, and I, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying this was a bad thing. The um, George Soros and the U.S. government partnered to create um, Central Asian University. But what's really interesting is that um, until just a few years ago, it, its headquarters was a former Communist Party headquarters. So you've got... Um, Again, a U.S. government and you know open society, and I don't really equate those. I think you know the sorts projects can be really quite interesting, um, but they again they move into this really kind of you know in, into a former communist space, and so when I was there. I was interested, along with some of the scholars there, of looking at these these different U.S. or U.S. inflected spaces that are overlaid on this former Soviet past, which is still very visible and profound. And the, the obvious ironies that one would have to go to is the, the main institution um, was the major military base. Um, in the NATO US base where soldiers flew into Afghanistan um, and also the planes that refueled fighting you know jet fighters in the air all came out of just outside of bishkek and in what was called the um, the Manas air base and and that and so and that's kind of that's a stamp of triumphalism that I think I mean it, it's so incredibly problematic and people in Kyrgyzstan were both um, incredibly disturbed that the US had the nerve to, name its airbase after um sort of this ancient kyrgyz hero um sort of a poet mythological person um somebody very important in the culture and then there were also enormous criticisms of the environmental and social impact of having an air base there polluted water um a civilian killed by a soldier. So all of these kind of problems that are like repeating um, the the deep problems that come with American base presences, e- even though the United States was you know technically talking about you know they 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 were trying to avoid the deep problems in Vietnam and Okinawa and create a different kind of perhaps more flexible. Lily pad base, but nonetheless, I think these are you know very important local you know ge- it, it you know you need a geopolitical scale and a very local scale to understand what is so um, impactful about those kind of triumphalist presences and um, and it it does I think it just gives a lot of insight into. Um, how how inappropriate many uh, you know a, a lot of the supposed post cold war programs and actions were and how absolutely you know insensitive they were to um, what had been valued by people in locales about their past and what could you know possibly work for the future just really again stamping on a very western driven economic, military programs um, without, in any sense, listening to the histories, the needs, and the analysis of of people in these places.
0: Speaking of stamping without necessarily thinking about um, people in those places, um, I'd love to talk a bit more directly. Obviously, we've been talking around it to a degree and mentioned it a few times. Uh, The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. Um, And as you've sort of helped us understand, discussed so far, um, the history of the Cold War is, in a lot of ways, very directly relevant to the claims being made about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, despite the sort of decade in between. So can you tell us about kind of the explicit and the implicit claims that were being made about the history of the Cold War during these debates trying to justify the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan?
1: Yes, you know, absolutely. And let me start with what's implicit and hidden in those, because in both the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, the justifications for war and the modes of triumphalism, you know, we're the only unipol, you know, we're the only superpower. We won the Cold War through militarism. Militarism is clearly the answer. All of those depended on an enormous, um, and I think very self-conscious overt erasure of the actual history of the U.S. in Iraq and Afghanistan. So from the first U.S. war in the Gulf in, you know, 1991 and the invasion of 91, and certainly in 2003, um, the, the way both going to war and the justifications depended on covering up the fact that Saddam Hussein and Iraq had been a very strong U.S. ally, their really most important ally in the region after the Iranian revolution, and that the U.S. had poured tons of money into into that regime um, before then um, turning against the regime, um, perhaps with a very simple motivation that they after the cold war, they were determined to have, they needed a new justification to have a powerful base presence and military presence to control oil in that region. So the the justifications and things shipped without the Soviet union. So it depends on, you know, really covering up that relationship. It also depends, you know, deeply in Afghanistan, um, on completely covering up the U.S. covert aid to um, the most radical, militant um, Mujahideen and fundamentalist groups fighting against the Soviet Union, and that the U.S. had, um, had there were had certainly there were groups that were anti-Soviet during the um, you know in the seventies and eighties. But the U.S. had quite a role in 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 stoking those groups and putting a lot of money into them, in it beyond what many people know as as the covert funding of the Stinger missiles, led by the Democratic uh, Congressperson Charlie Wilson, in conjunction with right wing evangelical leaders in, in in Texas that just raised a massive amount of money and covertly funneled all of this money. So. So the U.S. had kind of a deep role in strengthening groups that eventually attacked it. And then another story that journalists like Stephen Cole and others have told, and I said this, my book was so dependent on these brilliant investigative journalists. But in addition to that history, the U.S. kept working with Taliban militants in the 1990s. There's kind of this brief period where the U.S. does pull out of Afghanistan, but they're soon working with all these groups, and why it's all about oil, and it's all about the U.S. trying to control oil that's coming out of the Caspian region. And in the eyes of the U.S., and again, this is a kind of real triumphalism. There, they, um, they people like um, U.S. politicians, but very interestingly. So sort of Dick Cheney, who of course. Very importantly, is a vice president under George W. Bush in 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 the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But Cheney is had been a secretary of defense under George H.W. He's now in the private world of oil, meeting with um, <laughs> Meeting with caspian you know, meeting with leaders trying to control this this oil, and the u s logic kind of i think kind of unbelievably and it's it's so powerful it's so destructive that, that for some reason the u s said we cannot let caspian pipes go through Russia or be Russia controlled. We have to control this Again, another way of kind of punishing Russia in terms of a cold war triumphalism, so they were looking there was two possible pipeline projects, but both and without getting into great amount of detail, both of all sort of going around Russia and going through regions where the U.S. where the Taliban was either operating or if not strong, the U.S. sought the help of the Taliban to be able to go through parts of um, Afghanistan or Pakistan and um, again, evading Russia. So, so we've got oil companies, but with the more you know over tacit approval and even direct co- uh, cooperation of the US government working with the Taliban right up until very shortly before the 9-11 attacks. So, in order to then say you know, this is, uh, I mean, a, a horrible, horrible terrorist attack, loss of life, terrifying in so many ways. But instead of saying, you know, we made some mistakes in the Cold War or, you know, we need a strong international community cooperating at the level of the UN and environmentally to kind of address these broader um Problems, and one of the themes of the book is the deep refusal of the U.S. to ever acknowledge any kind of missteps of the Cold War. You know, Gorbachev had called for Glasnost, political openness. Mistakes were made. We must move. We must move away from these, these this kind of militarism and environmental destruction. Doubling down on those things the U.S. at the level of policymakers in the government was never willing to say that. So the Cold War nostalgia was so, it was deeply dependent on, we are denying this history, deny everything. We're not going to acknowledge it in any way. And, you know, so we are purely, we're not, we're purely victims, we're purely righteous. Um, We are, the only people that have the right to kind of lead the world and set the terms and cold war militarism worked. Militarism is the only solution we are absolutely going to mobilize militarily in these conflicts. So it's that deep one, two of absolute erasure and denial and, um, and then mobilizing this idea that we won the cold war We're the only superpower. We know what works and how to run the world. Trust us.
0: And what works is military force, right? Absolutely. So one of the ways that really seems to cement a lot of these ideas, right, that military force is the way forward, um, that, you know, trust us, etc., comes from a place that I wasn't really expecting to find. But as soon as you explained it in the book, I was like, oh, my God. Um, Immersive video games how do they play into this kind of one-two thing? How do they contribute to nostalgia and also this sort of idea that the solution is military force?
1: Absolutely, and thank you for that. So in over the 2000s, um, the biggest franchises and the, the most popular video games so we're, we can both say this in terms of numbers playing them the amount of money they're amassing um and i i activision and the call of duty series are the biggest ones in the cold war but um these become um i mean money-wise they're far far bigger than hollywood in terms of their reach and kind of the money brought in and i i should i should step back and say i mean i think a lot of you know a lot of a lot of younger people kind of probably understand the power and the reach of video games. I've also met with some skepticism about video games, but I think, uh, I think one way of thinking about their importance is they're like film and Hollywood, but they're also, I think, different and potentially more powers powerful. So I think many people would accept that, like that, the mem, the you know, the constructed memory, how the visceral feelings, the way people of different generations remember World War II, was very much um, influenced and inflected by movies that they saw in World War II. It it created a structure of feeling, a sensibility about what did the war feel like, why did it matter, who are the good guys and the bad guys. So I think I don't think a, I think I don't think a lot of people would question the power of film, but I want to suggest that. Video games they have that same power, and it's it, it's the, it was the new biggest popular culture technology of the post Cold War era and especially of the 2000s. So I think it has that same power to shape ideas and I also think I don't want to come back to the narration because very much like a film, um, these games told the story of a cold, of the Cold War. They replayed the campaigns in a way that they claimed was authentic. But I think there's also a way in which video games are different because especially as one goes through playing a first-person shooter game, they're highly scripted games, and the player has to be fully attentive, or they're going to get knocked over and not be able to go on with the game. So I think it, they become an embodied experience and an embodied cultural practice that, I don't want to say it's like night and day, that people could have a very embodied experience of a movie, from with all the visual effects, the sound, they very emotional affective experience. But I think arguably that video games necessarily take this to another level because it demands embodied engagement or you simply can't go on. Um, So I think, you know, and I I also want to say that, you know, I, I started doing, I started looking at these video games because of my students. I've been talking about the Cold War and students would come up to me and, well, you must know about Call of Duty Here, you know, they would just hand me things. Or you've got to go do this. And so many of those students, like like my most brilliant grad students, were playing Call of Duty. They didn't get taken in. They, they, you know, they didn't they didn't adopt any of the narratives or any of the assumptions about the Cold War. But then they were critically studying history. But the a lot of these games, um, and I I, they should say in this era. this franchise and a couple of other big ones evolved from they were doing World War II. They were, they were about the world wars, but then they all started doing the cold war. And so, um, one of the call of duties that, that immediately became the largest, most popular, acclaim for its technical brilliance. It's getting, you know, it's it's getting all the top accolades from, you know, critics as well as, you know, um, again, it, it's making the most money. Um, it very, it, it consciously replayed um the old campaigns of the Cold War, of course, in a very, very distorted sense. But the player starts out and your your mission was to assassinate Castro. Um, and then it turns out you shot a different person that doesn't. Um, another mission was taking one down the Mekong Delta. So it's going through Vietnam. Another one was um, being in a gulag camp and having to escape. And um, so and I, I look at, I mean, be, They play. They're they're very clever in the way they both make incredible claims to authenticity. (laughs) The video game makers, they go to the Library of Congress. They go and they look. They they, so at one point, archivist in you know archivist in um, national archives of various sorts often said like for the photography side. We see far more video game makers than we see historians because they have this idea of authenticity or credibility. Our uniforms have to be exactly right, so there's this claim to authenticity at the same time that they're um taking liberties is just an understatement they're they're you know they're they're replaying this in a a completely distorted kind of fantasy kind of way that is. Um, you know, that's not, a, you know, again, it's, it's not at all related to anything that actually happened in the Cold War. But I think that claim to authenticity then um, is very important. And an interesting dynamic is, um, and some people have really written about this really beautifully, we could go back to an older book, Robert Stahl's Militainment, there's a deep relationship between video game industry and the military. And some of what Stahl had laid out. I think one of the first people to do it is the way um, the way the military was using video game technology to train um, pilots and train zone, you know, drone fighters and the way so people would be essentially like playing a video game to, um, you know, in Colorado and directing airplanes and drones in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, but then a relationship develops where the video games are you know they're going to the military and to the government for um stamps of authenticity just like hollywood would go to um run their scripts by the CIA or the navy or the Ar- army because you know, please approve our scripts so you, so, and let us use your airplane or your navy ship in our film, so we're cool and authentic, and we can have a good film. So that interplay has long been there, and then I think this gets, but it gets really um, more elaborate because lots of people, you know, call you know, Activision is going to the military, but the military start to say. Oh, well, you guys are kind of cool, and we really kind of like your imagination, so the military is then talking with activism activision, the Call of Duty makers, about well, what we're thinking about ideas for enhanced you know creating an enhanced communication for soldiers, enhanced like um sort of neurochemical communication. Um, and how how might we think of this so then the mil- so the military is literally going to um, these companies for ideas about what does a future of a soldier look like? what kind of technology do we need? how do we reimagine um, a better more tech savvy more you know maybe cyber soldier? Um, so I think it's it, it, I think it's something that I mean there's some very really good journalist um, tracking this. And I think it's something that we really need to pay attention to. So a very, very powerful industry.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'd love to move us away from, as fascinating as that is, and I really could ask you so many more questions on it. um, I do want to kind of move us as we continue this vaguely chronological discussion um, more towards the present um, because Nostalgia, as you've demonstrated, is very clearly a part of what's happening now um, in Russia, in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, in America. All sorts of ideas about the Cold War um, are still very much floating around, um, alongside a bunch of other things that are happening, right? Uh, the big ones being that the US and Russia no longer seem to be on the same side, if at any point they were since the Cold War. Um, but at the other time, at the at the other at, at the same time, there are aspects of politicians and ideas in the United States and aspects of politicians and ideas in Russia that seem to be working together and aligned, um, which seems quite contradictory. Um, How does nostalgia play into that and maybe help us understand it a little bit better?
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, I think that... um, I think... Nostalgia is important in this sense. I, and and, and I'm at a, so I'm going to start with the sort of the alignments of conservatives in the United States and Russia that you saw so clearly in the Trump campaign and then the Trump presidency. And I think that that comes through a claim that it, it's a nostalgic claim about about victimization and and I do and I do kind of present this as a paradox because if we look across the 2000s and we can certainly now talk about the war in Ukraine but bracketing that for a moment and what's going up to that you have you've got a very pronounced growing hostility between the US and Russia that's focused around the expansion of NATO and and you've got then, um, but at the same time, and it it is a it's a different thing. Although occasionally some of the same players are involved, you've got cultural conservatives, religious conservatives, um, pro gun conservatives in those two countries working together, and that's part of the coalition that both put money into a Trump campaign and we can associate with the Trump presidency. So um, um, a, a, a group, a sort of a national marriage group in the United States, which is promoting marriages only between a man and a woman, helped write new legislation for the Russian Duma. Um, conservatives in Russia are directly funding um, national gun lobbies in the United States. So you've got very, very direct connections going on there at the same time um, a sometimes overlapping, but usually a, like a somewhat different group of people then are are pushing an expansion um, an expansion of NATO and um, which which clearly um, you know, you know, I think what we could debate forever what exactly the causal effects are, but this, um, clearly this did antagonize Putin and it's one factor in, you know, we couldn't understand the war in Ukraine or what is going on now without understanding that expansion and the way agreements that Russians from Gorbachev to Yeltsin to later Putin had understood, um, understood as sacrosanct that were then violated and how that kind of fed into their hostility. But what's more interesting to me in a certain sense is how triumphalism, you know, sort of different stories about the Cold War past lead into a conservative turn in Russia and the United States. Because I'd like to point out that George W. Bush, who is running in 2000 on um he and his advisors are already talking about going into Iraq. They're well before 9-11. They're saying, you know, Cold War nostalgia, Bush said, he runs saying, you know, when I was coming up in the Cold War, we knew who us and them were. Um, he's got all these ungrammatical Bushisms, like we didn't know who the them was, but we knew they were out there. Now we don't know who the them are, but we know they're out there. And so he's already running on this this fear that's going to be linked to war and imperial expansion. They already wanted to invade Iraq, you know, and it, it took the pretext of false weapons of mass destruction several years later to do it after, you know, after 9-11, but they're already thinking about this. So I am there. They're, I'm thinking of this as a notion of kind of imperial expansion, the unipolar power, um, as you know, with with a very overt expansionism, it's the same time that Putin is running with an idea of consolidating empire, bringing back the might of Russia after humiliation. And I think what I don't know if it evolved with I I, I can't I don't know if it evolved with Putin or how much of it was always there. But what's interesting is Putin clearly evolved into a a nostalgia for a much older Russian empire, completely leaping over the Soviet experiment. And he's become very overt about this as of late. You could see it around the anniversary of the Russian Revolution and journalists commented. And I actually had a very unusual opportunity. (laughs) It was a weird opportunity, but actually... To, to visit Russia at that time with a university group. And it was clear that Putin, what, that, that sort of ideological line, they wanted to ignore the revolution. Putin did not want any opposite. He didn't want people talking about healthcare, um, jobs. He didn't want a memory of the Russian revolution at all because he didn't want anybody protesting. He's putting down any protest in any democratic protest. Um, there was this, Speaking of critical nostalgia, this wonderful period at the St. Petersburg Museum, the political museum in Russia, that had a very, very sensitive probing of the Soviet past. We're going to look at all the repression. We're going to look at all the scientific achievements, you know, the ballet, the hockey, every side of this. By the time I saw that again in 2017, it was the sole story was about how Russia was a victim, not just of NATO and the US, but a victim of the Soviet Union. That that they'd become the biggest victims of all. And it literally had a plaque saying, you know, taking one of the greatest Soviet achievements, which was literacy, and saying, the Soviets taught people to read because you can't propagandize people who can't read. So it it even takes away this achievement and says it's an evil thing. So you could really see Putin headed toward a kind of bizarre reinvention of this imperial czarist past and seeing himself as an embodiment of that so that and i think that is one of the um and i think one one kind of upshot is that this this earlier um the earlier thing you could see at the museum is that there was some you know it's an example of critical nostalgia like let's really probe the past in critical ways. It follows up on Gorbachev's call for glasnost openness. Let's really be honest about the past. But that how how nostalgia and maybe examinations of the past are always dangerous and they can morph into claims of victimhood, mythological claims about an invented past that that are, you know, it's Putin seems to be living in a caricatured world of this that would be, more interesting if it wasn't so dangerous. So that is one way that nostalgia has kind of led into this, um, into this kind of conflict and the horrible, um, mode that that has taken with, um, this, you know, illegal, brutal, brutal invasion of Ukraine. Now on the side, um, on the side of the U S, um, and I know this is would not be an undisputed claim. Um, there is hot debate about this, but I I I do think the um, the US clearly broke agreements with Russia. There one of the first blow ups about this was with Clinton and Yeltsin um back, you know, as early as you know, back in the early nineties, but clearly broke understandings that, you know, is, is as people said, like not one inch that, you know, that that NATO, you know, with German unification, NATO would, you know, Germany was in NATO, but that was not going to expand further. And, and I think we do need to understand that to see however criminal and horrible Putin and his oligarchs are, that, that we can't understand their worldview if we don't understand that kind of expansion of NATO. And I think this is one of the major arguments in my book that that it's it's a piece of um, what the Cold War nostalgia in the US, again, this, I won the Cold War because a military might, led to a valorization and indeed a dependence on militarism over diplomatic solutions at every single point. And this is true, I think, throughout the nineties. It's true as the US goes into Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, and I think I think if we go back again, looking at contingent moments um that there um and diplomacy. There were diplomatic alternatives at many, many, many points at which the U.S. chose war, and some of the stories that I tell in the '90s really emphasize divisions in the United States. There were um, with conflicts with Korea, with conflicts with Russia. There were a group of there were a group of diplomats who um, sought conver- you know who sought conversation, diplomacy. But then there were also groups, and this is sometimes a divided Congress, sometimes it's divisions within an administration. There's other groups that are pushing a more hawkish agenda that very that very much resembles Cold War thinking. And now I'll say, you know, it's, you know, I don't have the information to say exactly what could have happened with russia in you know just horrible invasion of ukraine but i but i do think there are i think that then there should have been harder questions asked about diplomatic possibilities what i saw with biden administration and biden himself so biden's saying not long before that so biden thank goodness, is, you know, it's trying to put the U.S. back in a cooperative mode. Like, oh, we're, you know, and again, it, it's 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 so dizzying and bizarre that Trump would leave the World Health Organization, abandon all of his international, well, climate agreement, very, very important, abandon all this. So Biden is trying to go back into a cooperative multinational mode. He also says very overtly, um, we are we are going all out with diplomacy. So he makes a big deal about diplomacy over conflict and militarism. Yet, when Putin invades Ukraine, he very quickly, I I, I would use the word reverts, reverts to a language of, a Cold War language of Victor's history. Saying not simply this is a illegal criminal invasion, and we are going to put all international cooperation on the table to stop this. And because I'm not a pacifist, I I, for me, of course, if you're getting attacked militarily, that can involve military help. But instead of that, very quickly slip to even slipping to say regime change, victory um this you know russia must be defeated and one of the consequences and again i i i you know i think there's always diplomatic alternatives but another thing that was heavily on the table and being in the news every day before that invasion was climate redress and that literally fell off the news discussion for months and um and Without figures at hand, I've been looking at, you know, figures, the, the level of emissions have gone up spectacularly over the next, over the last year, you know, really tied to the effects of war. And I think there, I think there's just so much at stake here for, you know, just the, you know, just the, the future of the earth, the future of life. And that are, that's again, would be profoundly dependent on um, looking at demilitarization environmental redress, and I think that should have been kept at the forefront of the conversation all through even as even as countries even as the world um, you know even as an international community in the United states um, supported and defended Ukraine in, in, you know, as necessary in a, in a military invasion.
0: Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, in hopefully, well, I don't know, maybe, um, less global implications level, um, but very much still staying in this idea of looking to the future. Um, there's so many more things I could have asked you. Uh, however, we have taken rather a lot of your time. So, uh, I would love to invite you as my final question to share any future work that you are working on or looking to work on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic. Um, now that the book is available, what are you up to?
1: Well, I'm working on a couple of things and, one, one of them, a little bit um, not getting like really away from the vein of the Cold War, but but kind of drawing more on my earlier emphasis on global solidarity movements, on small D democratic movements, and the artists and creative people involved in those is kind of a look at um, kind of a long arc of some interesting cultural configurations of musicians, artists, and activists that are, um, that are challenging, sort of shifting cold war and imperial formations that go up through the eighties. So it's not contempt. It's, it's, it's sort of jumping back to the period before. And while I always try to keep in mind, like in, in the current book, the, um, I'm looking at what these hegemonic projects and the unipolar project is displacing. It, it does look more at the, um, at, at those projects and sort of, and the politicians and people who kind of per- perpetrated those projects. So it's kind of going a little bit more back to that um, oppositional side. Uh, so, and, mm-hmm. and in some sense, so that's, that's really the main thing. And um, I, and I, I'm, I'm also, because through doing this book, it can be, I think, so, just so interesting to look at, um, to look at popular culture and the way it's spinning out politics. So I'm also, you know, looking at, um, kind of sort of a book that looks at the, that that looks at, um, that looks at the popular culture across this period.
0: Mm. Well, both of those projects sound fascinating, so best of luck with them. While you are off doing that work, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorder since 1989. Penny, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
1: Thank you very, very much for having me.